Jeremiah chapter 52, we're starting a whole year of study on two books, mainly one, but we'll be going into the book of Ezra as well. But I titled it, Does Anybody, anybody Care Enough to Rebuild? Now, I don't know if, if, you, if you remember having kids or if you have grandchildren, you might know this very true. It, it takes a lot of effort to build a bunch of blocks up into a tower or to a house, but it only takes one little swing and the whole thing comes crashing down. And the, the truth about re, rebuilding is it is a lot of work. Anybody who's ever tried to be a counselor or to be a help to somebody who's going through a hard time, you know it's going to take time and a lot of work. Well, Nehemiah is just a wonderful, wonderful book about rebuilding. And I'm going to get into that in just a moment. So I wanted to give a picture of a bunch of rubble and somebody up at the top trying to decide are they going to strive to rebuild. So I'm excited about our new study theme this year. And um, uh, we, we called it, I've just decided to call it Building and Battling by the Book. And uh, it is, uh, the Christian life is not one that you just sort of go, zing, wow, I am Mr. Perfect. No, that doesn't happen. Um, Bible tells us to build up our faith. The Bible tells us to build our families. The Bible tells us to, um, uh, uh, to build up our knowledge of the Bible and of things that are true. The Bible says that God is a builder. Jesus says, I will build my church. There's a lot of building in the Bible, but there's a lot of battling too. Just getting out of bed this morning, some of you, it was a battle, amen? But there are a lot of serious battles. Well, I, I can fight, but I want to fight God's way. And I can build, I can do things, but I want to build God's way. So that, <coughs> that's what Nehemiah is going to help us focus on. So we're, to, we're studying two construction books this year. And the first one is the book of Ezra. Now, uh, the second one is the book of Nehemiah. Now, both of these books, let me stop here. Both of these books record the events surrounding the return of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon uh, back, in Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem. Jeremiah 52 and verse 12. Jeremiah 52 now, one of the unique things about the prophet Jeremiah was he was an eyewitness of the destruction of not only the temple, which was devastating, but also the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 52, verse 12. Now, in the fifth month, this is the end of his book. He's writing about the end of time as far as he was concerned. These were This was Armageddon. Now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, same guy, king of Babylon, came, one of his generals, Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon, and he came into Jerusalem. He was able to march right in because the walls had been breached. They had been torn down. Verse 13, it says, And he burned the house of the Lord. That was a temple. And he burned the king's house. And he burned all the houses of Jerusalem. And all the houses of the great men burned he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about it. So he watched as they literally wrapped massive ropes around huge stones and they attached it to trains, to, to uh, uh, yokes of, of uh, horses, and they pulled down every stone of this city Go down to verse 27, it says this, verse 27, of the king of Babylon smote them, which means he fought them, and he put them to death in Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus was Judah, thus Judah, the whole nation of Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. Honestly. Now that happened in 606 BC. Solomon's glorious temple is in rubble. The walls of Jerusalem, in rubble. The houses of the great princes of Israel, in rubble. Well, some years later, Ezra and, and Nehemiah, uh, uh, well, let me just say, Ezra and Zerubbabel head up the rebuilding of the temple 70 years later. 
So Ezra's one of those books that all of a sudden is great excitement. We're going to rebuild. Now they start with the temple. And then Nehemiah, 90 years after that, so 160 years later after the destruction of Jerusalem, he goes back and he's going to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Now, these books record more than just the rebuilding of, the ru of ruined walls. You know, God didn't write these books just for builders, you know. If you want to... Uh, I, there's a lot of farming advice in the Bible, but it wasn't written for farmers. There's a lot of building advice in the Bible, but it's not written for builders. It is not written just to how to rebuild ruined walls, but it was written and gave us God's instruction on how to rebuild and restore ruined lives. As we read and we learn His truth, you'll feel, you'll, we'll discover how God expects leaders to act. It will tell us, Nehemiah will tell us how to share burdens and work together as teens to do impossible tasks. If you haven't figured it out yet, you can't do it all yourself. You need a team, you need a family, you need a church. It also shows how sin will weaken every part of our lives and must be consistently battled against or else it wins. And there's a dozen more great truths we'll see. This morning, I wanna show you how God prepares a man named Nehemiah for such an impossibly large task as rebuilding a city ruined by war. Pay attention, because Nehemiah has to face, first off, the cold, harsh realities of life in the rubble. Most of us don't care about others. Most of us couldn't care less what other people are going through. Most, even Christians, don't care about what people are experiencing as they're trying to live for God. They don't care about souls. You know, you think just because your neighbor has a new car every year, because your neighbor is is happy and goes golfing every weekend, just because they look so far on the outside, without Jesus Christ, they live in rubble. Just like you did. You say, well, I was a drunkard. You know, they may never pick up a bottle, but they're on prescription meds, or they're on something else, folks. Let me tell you, without God, without hope in the world, you cannot live very long without turning to a crutch, without turning to a drink, or a bottle, or pills. So, um, <clears throat> Then we're going to watch as God calls him to rise up and make a difference and lead a few thousand, not many, but a few thousand families to return home and rebuild what sin had destroyed. You know, if you look at your life and you see my family, my home, my life, sin just destroys, well, let's rebuild. Let's look at that thing and say, I'm not giving up this time. I'm not quitting this time. 2018, I'm going to get into the, into the rubble and we're going to build something that lasts. Father, I pray that you'd help us this year to take these words as instructions to us and take this one life that you zoom in on, this life of Nehemiah, and don't let us just focus on being like him, but let us focus on being like all the unnamed people that went with him. Went into that, that rubble and said, we will arise. We're going to get off our rear. We're going to go where it's unpleasant. We're going to do what is hard because God is prospering us and he's called us but we're going to do it. And this year, I pray we would do it all year long. We would hear your word and let it change our life. Don't let it just, Father, don't let it just be information. Don't let it just be knowledge. Change our lives. Change our homes. Save some souls this year through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, by way of background, <clears throat> When you turn to the book of Jeremiah, and we can't quite go there yet, but when you go to the book of Jeremiah, you'll be looking at a journal. That's what it is. It's his journal, his diary. Or if he was in the 21st century, it's his blog. Okay? It's him recording how he sees the hand of God in his life and in the day-to-day the, the -day struggles, and it's amazing. It begins... In the 20th year of a king named Artaxerxes. Now, all calendars were dated according to the reign of the current king. So, you would date your birth, let's say if you were at the time of King Saul. You might date your birth as, I was born the 30th year of the reign of King Saul. Now, he only reigned 40 years and then David came along. So, your wedding might be on the 10th year of King David. So, can you imagine writing, I was married, the I was born on the 30th year, in the 30th year of King Saul. I was married on the 10th year of King David. 
and your funeral was in the 25th, 25th year of King Solomon. That's how calendars work. They worked by the years of the current king. By the way, our calendar's the same. Our calendar's dated by the reign of the king of kings. The unique thing about our calendar is it never ends because he never dies. Hallelujah. He'll never be replaced. So we're going to learn this is, it actually happens in a month called Chislev. Remember that. That's going to be on the test. Not really. Which is about mid-November, mid-December. So this is about the same time of year as we're going through. And uh, it, the year is 444 B.C. Now, <clears throat> Jeremiah records, as I already said, Jeremiah records Judah's destruction in 606. And he had to write some of the hardest words for any eyewitness. Uh, I remember watching and listening to a newsreel in, in Lindhurst, New Jersey, of a reporter as he's reporting on the Hindenburg. How I many remember the Hindenburg, the big dirigible, the big air balloon, not air balloon, the hydrogen balloon? And as he was landing, they were recording all these dignitaries uh, and German officials and very wealthy people coming over from Germany, and they were just about to land, and they're sitting there winding their cameras and filming the whole thing. And he's on the radio, and it was going to be for a, a news release later on. But on the radio, they recorded the exasperation as this reporter records seeing this, this hydrogen bomb, this hydrogen balloon go up in flames. And he's weeping on the radio. He's crying out, oh, oh this, is, this is so bad, as it burned and it crashed to the ground. That was what Jeremiah felt as he wrote his city being broken up and his, his, the people in Jerusalem being slaughtered and dragged away, children being dragged away and watching their parents being murdered and being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. He personally witnessed the chastisement of God on his people for their idolatry and their sexual perversions that were on every street corner in Jerusalem. And it's on every house and in every phone in America and in Ireland and in Germany and in France. All over the world we have the same sexual perversion that God judged Israel for. Watched as his people were slaughtered. Well, there were other writers at the same time. Esther, after Jeremiah, Esther's in the time of the captivity, when they're all slaves and captives in Babylon and later Persia. Esther's a wonderful book, by the way. We're going to be looking at Esther. We looked at her about 10 years ago, so in our uh, youth camp, but Esther and Mordecai. But there's also the books of Daniel are written during this times, And Ezekiel and Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all recording Israel in, in, in captivity and then returning. But two books we're going to focus on that really focus on the rebuilding. As I said, the first one's Ezra, and Ezra records the rebuilding of Jerusalem's worship, the temple, the place where, where they were to honor God and, and, and sacrifice and worship God. And uh, Nehemiah rebuilds, records the rebuilding of the walls. And as I said, it's not just rebuilding walls in the temple, but lives and personal worship, especially rebuilding momentum for the Messiah. Things had to be right for the Messiah to be born. Things had to be, it wasn't that God was sort of too busy to become a man and to be born and to come and die. No, things had to be right. And so what does the devil do in your life when he's trying to, uh, when the Lord is trying to prepare you for service, when he's trying to prepare you for something great, when he's trying to take you from where you are to where he needs you to be. As soon as, 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 as God begins to direct your life and to pull you in a certain direction, the devil pulls the rug out from under you, tries to stop it. And he did that time after time. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was, uh, just after he was baptized, he went into the desert, and what happened? What did the devil do? He tried to derail him. He tried to kill him one time. He took him up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, jump! <laughs> what? He's, he's 20 meters up in the air, and, and the devil says, oh, the Lord will carry you down. He won't let you to stumble your, your foot. Yeah, what a lie. And there was the devil trying to convince him to end his life before he even got into the ministry. You see how the devil works? He'll always come along and try to destroy your attempt to do what God calls you to do. And he's pretty effective at it, wouldn't you agree? 
Think about it. Think how many times you know the Lord's got something for you to do, and it just dies. But it'd be just a little over 400 years from, from, from the book of Nehemiah until, baby, until a baby Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So there's a lot of work to do. So this book takes place in two places, all right? The first one is in the splendor of Persia. In Shushan, the palace, we find Nehemiah. He is in the lap of luxury. He's in one of the highest position jobs that you could imagine. He, as we'll discuss, a butler, uh, a, a cupbearer, was not like we consider somebody who sort of, you know, at a, at a restaurant, you know, they come and they fill your water, you know, uh, you happy today? This, this is not what he did. He had such an important job, and he was so well taken care of. That's where we find everything starting in the Nehemiah. But it ends up in the midst of rubble in Jerusalem, and that's the rest of the book. That's where we find the real life of the servant of God. So, who is this Nehemiah guy? That's, uh, uh, mm, I want to go to Jeremiah, but we'll go to Nehemiah right now. Uh, Nehemiah's to the left. Before Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to have to go and find Nehemiah just before Job. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So, find Nehemiah. Chapter 1 and verse 1. <clears throat> he starts off his journal and he says this. He says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 12th, 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace. Now just stop there for a second. Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts. Now, his mom and his dad sat down in the midst of slavery, in the midst of captivity, away from their homeland, away from their... Their, their future, everything. They were uh, refugees, not really because they were captives, they were dragged away. But here, mom and dad, instead of saying cursed, my son, why don't you just use the name cursed? We're cursed. Instead of that, it says, no, the Lord's comforting. The Lord comforts. So they had some hope in this boy. They says, you know, the Lord's going to do something with our son. And you know, you ought to name your children with hopeful names, amen? Imagine your name's failure. I mean, be careful about how you transfer your feelings about life to your children. So they named him, you know, Lord Comforts. He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He wasn't born of royalty. He's just a nobody. He's, when I say a nobody, he's a layman. He's, he's not destined for greatness by birth. He was a slave for all practical purposes. The son of Hakaliah. Now we don't know who Hakaliah is, but everybody's got a daddy. And there are several Nehemiahs, so this one happens to be the son of Hakaliah. And I'm sure his dad was very proud of him for what he attempted to do, by the way. But we just don't know his dad. We just know Nehemiah's unique guy. But here it gets interesting. Nehemiah was a eunuch. What does that mean? That means he never got to marry. Wasn't that nobody would have him, <laughs> like some of us. You know, I told you about last week when uh, um, uh, Winston Churchill was asked what was the greatest accomplishment in his life. He says, convincing my wife to marry me. <laughs> he couldn't have a wife. He was a eunuch. And that was because of his employment, his career choice, if you want to call it. He, he wasn't, uh, the, to make sure he never got distracted by women and wine, he was a eunuch, which means he couldn't be married, couldn't have children. And that leads to his, his employment. He was the king's cupbearer. Now, he worked for the great Artaxerxes Logomenus, who ruled Persia from 464 to 423 B.C. A cupbearer was more than just being a butler. It was a position of great responsibility and privilege. At each meal, he would test the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was somebody who stood so close to the king that he had to be handsome. You can't have an ugly guy who smelled bad, didn't take baths and hair out of place standing by the king. So this guy was, was well-groomed. He stood proud. He, he was a servant of the king. And he stood there knowledgeable. He was cultured. He had to learn the language of Persia. 
He was knowledgeable in court procedures. Uh, he was able to converse with the king, and he would even advise him if asked. Now, this guy was so unique in that he was always with the king because the king, kings are always thirsty. They're always eating grapes. They're always wanting for wine. So he's there constantly at the king's side, and at the side of the king, he hears every conversation. How would you like if somebody heard every conversation you guys have every day? Hmm? How would you like it if every day somebody was there and heard all your intimate discussions, all your gritting of your teeth, all of your financial dealings, all of your plans for conquering? He was super important as a cupbearer because he always stood by the king and could hear everything going on in the discussions, even between him and his wives, between him and his children, between him and his counselors. And I'm sure, just get the idea, the king would look up and say, so what do you think, Nehemiah? Uh, whatever you think, king, you know how it is. He was a king's cupbearer. He held such an important position that the palace spoke well of Nehemiah's character and ability. Everybody in the palace said, Nehemiah's a good guy. Now, I don't know, anybody who gets in politics usually gets tainted. Isn't that true? Usually they are easily bought, manipulated, uh, uh, Nehemiah, sure, I bet, was, 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 uh, had people trying to buy his favor so that he could put a good word in for them to the king. But everybody in the palace says Nehemiah is unique. Nehemiah fears God. Nehemiah seems to not be viable. Amen. And that ought to be the character of a Christian. Your co-workers at work and at school should be able to buy you and change your, your life by a, by a, a fling or by... Uh, a pay raise or something like that. You ought to have character. And he had the, he had the respect of everybody in, the, in, in the, the king's court. It turns out that God had a work for him. God had a job for him. That Nehemiah couldn't have done or anybody else, nobody else could have done without a calling. You know, God put Nehemiah right in Shusha, Shusha in the palace, just as he put generation... Uh, uh, Esther there a generation earlier, just like he put Joseph over in Egypt, just like he put Daniel in Babylon, God puts you where you need to be at that time. You say, why am I in Ireland? Wait, you'll find out. Every time you find yourself in a place where it just, you, you, you say, what am I here for? Maybe because God is going to use you to do a mission, to do something great. So Nehemiah, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah gets some news. Nehemiah gets some news. So verse 2, it says, I was in Shushan the palace, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, he's got several brothers, but this is one of his brothers, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and I asked concerning the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is an ordinary day for some extraordinary news. No doubt it was just another ordinary day when Nehemiah hears that his brother's back in town. He had just returned from a visit to Jerusalem, and it turned out to be the turning point in Nehemiah's life. I think Hananiah probably, Hananiah was probably part of a survey team working for the king, and they would, uh, people would be sent out to go and check on certain cities and villages and check on regions and see how the kingdom's doing. I mean, Artaxerxes uh, had a vast empire, and they didn't have internet. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have satellite. They had people. And so you put a guy on a horse, and you say, ride 3,000 miles that way, and tell me how the kingdom's doing over there. <laughs> and so people were constantly coming, going, and reporting on the conditions of the empire. Most reports, usually, were about towns and cities thriving under King Artaxerxes. I mean, if you were the empire, you would want all of your cities thriving, business booming. You'd want taxes increasing. Well, it turned out to be a day that changed Nehemiah's life, uh, life forever because it wasn't good news. By the way, I think days like that just come on you. You can't plan on it. I don't think Nehemiah knew what was coming. I think Nehemiah's, he's... He's sort of just set in, in normal routine, so on and so forth. He has character. 
He loves God. He knows how to walk with God. He's going against the flow. Everything in his worship is right, and he gets bad news. Which is kind of like when Moses was out there caring for sheep, and then he heard a voice out of a bush saying, Today's the day I change your life. And Moses' life was changed. I think of the day that David was out tending sheep, and his brother comes running up saying, Get in the house. Samuel's there. And he says, we can't eat till you get there. <laughs> and when David enters into the house, Samuel stands up, walks over, and pours a whole tub of oil on him and says, the next king. I mean, out of nowhere. One day. I think of uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John out fishing. And some man walks up along the shore and says, uh, guys, how'd you like to catch men? And they left their nets. One day, what is it? What are you waiting for? You're waiting for a big earthquake? You're waiting for, for lightning to strike three times? You're waiting for a message to come on your phone from God? No. But I tell you what, when the Lord does show up, it'll be a day you're not expecting. And you better be ready. You never know what God has in store for you. So Nehemiah asked about how Jerusalem was and about the Jews who were living there. And he writes, I love this, verse um, uh, verse 2, it says that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews. So he's writing down his journal. He says, and I asked them. And he's, he's, he's describing how he, um, uh, how he was feeling. And I, I think it's kind of unique. He didn't ask about any other region, any other nation, or any other city. On his mind were those people who had left Persia 90 years earlier to go back to Jerusalem, how they were getting on. You know, let's take our, let's take us right now, let's transport us back 150 years ago. And the famine raging in Ireland. People selling everything they had to just get on a boat to go to Ellis Island, go to America. People on the shore waving goodbye, saying, I wonder if we'll ever hear from them again. And months later, getting a letter and opening it up, finding out so-and-so died on the trip. So-and-so didn't survive the first winter in New York. You see, these, these people who had left 90 years before, Nehemiah is still concerned about their grandchildren, still concerned about what's going on in that city. Were they okay? Were they safe? Were they, were they able to rebuild these ancestral homes? Certainly after all these years, Jerusalem must be beautiful. But the news was bad. Verse 3, And he said unto me, The remnant that are left, and there weren't a lot left. It wasn't like it was thriving. He used the word remnant, meaning they're being wasted. They're, they're falling off like flies. The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is still broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. So there are three words that show up in this conversation. Remnant, affliction, and reproach. Now, instead of a nation, instead of a land inhabited by a thriving nation, only a remnant of people, only a, 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 a shadow of what should be there, was there. Affliction. When he says of great affliction, he's describing people who are being hurt by their enemies. If you're in affliction, you can be in a health affliction, yes, but these weren't people who were struggling with health problems. They were under constant attack. They were constantly being hurt and maybe killed by people who just walk right into their city because there were no walls. There was no protection. There was no government, nothing. This city had been abandoned by Nebuchadnezzar and then by the next kings. And there was nothing there except affliction. And then reproach. Instead of a magnificent city, Jerusalem was still in ruins. Where once had been great glory and a mighty temple built by Solomon, there was nothing but embarrassment and shame. Honestly, I, I hate talking about these things because people are very superstitious. But let me give you a description. You left home this morning. I don't freak out. You left home this morning, came to church. What if you went back home and it was all burned down in rubble? And all your neighbors looking at you, 
poor Craig. Oh, I don't know how he's going to get on. You feel embarrassed. You feel defeated. And that's how Jeremiah, no, sorry, uh, that's how Nehemiah felt. He says, there's nothing but reproach. Everybody's looking at us. We are not a nation. We have nothing to show for our worship of God and our relationship with God. Now, of course, um, uh, Nehemiah had known, let me come back to this, Nehemiah had known all his life that the Babylonians had completely destroyed it. This was not news to him that everything was destroyed. And I want you to get an idea. The walls that were destroyed were seven meters thick. Thirteen and a half. Let me make sure I got it right. How tall? I was. Fifteen meters high, seven meters thick walls. And they were crushed down. I mean, I can't, I've been in some Irish houses, and they have two-foot walls. I think, oh, amazing, man. Uh, but seven meters thick, 15 meters high, and it's nothing but rubble now. You know, um, evidently, there'd been nothing but delays. The people who had first gone back under a guy named Zerubbabel, and then later Ezra, who had gone back, to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the temple and the walls had failed. The temple was barely in operation. They had rebuilt the temple, but everything else was rubble everywhere. It just died in its momentum. See, without high, strong walls and sturdy gates, and you'll see where all these things, what's the purpose of walls? What's the importance of learning about walls? You need to understand what walls are to the Christian. You need to understand, and if you've got any daughters that are growing up, you'll know the importance of putting a wall around her. Not to, not to keep her from having fun, but to keep her from being raped and being abused and having a life of tears and sorrow. Amen. There are times when you put a wall and you say, you're not going with that boy. You're not going out to the mall. You're staying home tonight. Why are you being so mean to me? I'm trying to save you. Some of, the, some of the young ladies in this room, if you had a daddy who was mean and, and fierce and, and spitting and, 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 and so harsh on you, and there you are, you were pure on your wedding day, you ought to hug him for the rest of your life. Amen. Amen. Walls. You need to have some things you won't do. That's a wall. I have a message I've been working on. What won't you do? Well, you know, I'll watch this TV program here. You know, I know it's getting a little risky. I know it's getting a lot risky. There's some things you need to put up a wall and say, I'm not watching that. Amen. There are some walls a Christian needs or the devil just walks in and trounces you every day. Amen. So don't just tell me, I don't think we need this message. We need this whole message. And you know, I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I love saying it. I hate to say it, but I don't really. Anyway, a lot of us look like failures. Because the Lord saved us and put holiness inside of us, put, put Jesus inside of us, put the joy of the Lord inside of us, put love inside of us, put grace inside of us, put courage inside of us, and we look like a failure because we haven't built anything with it. We still are running around the same cycles we did before we got saved, and the world looks at us and says, what a shame. Ouch. So get, get this, this year, don't go, what are we learning this for? We're learning it because this is the principles that apply to my life and your life about rebuilding what the devil has broken up, man. Without high walls, without strong walls, without sturdy gates, the city was open to constant attack and easy to defeat by any enemy that wanted to just rob and destroy every effort the people as they tried to live. Every time they planted a crop, somebody would come in and pull it up. Anytime they, they uh, built a house, somebody would come along and burn it. Anytime they were having kids, somebody would come along and would take them and put them on the slave route. You don't know how hard it was for Nehemiah to hear these words that his home capital, the, the city of God, was just in ruins. Not just, not just in rubble, but the people were in ruins. Imagine for a moment that Dublin had been destroyed by the, uh, at the uprising of 1916. I mean, all of Dublin. How would you feel? What if 1916 was not just a skirmish and uh, the, the English came in, and I don't mean to make you even angrier, 
But think about it. What if the English came in and says, we're not putting up with them, them Irish anymore. We're burning Dublin down to the ground. I mean, from stem to stern, top to bottom, everything. The only thing that's left in Dublin is the Liffey. How would you feel about your city? You'd be angry. Anytime somebody would mention the name Dublin, you'd go, oh, our city, our capital. Those Brits, they, they, they destroyed us. That's how you feel. Now you know how Nehemiah felt. Now, Nehemiah had no anger anymore. See, the empire that had destroyed his nation, destroyed his city, itself got destroyed. It'd be like England doing all the damage here in Ireland and then another country taking over England, you know. I think Eamon de Valera hoped for Germany to do that. I'm not sure, but it seemed like it. <laughs> but he wasn't angry about losing his capital. He just hurt for his city. He hurt for the people living there. Thank God for men who still have feelings for others. Thank God that people actually care about important things besides what they're going to wear today and what movie they're going to watch tonight or whether they're going to invest in Bitcoin or not. If that's what you're worrying about, I need to meet up with you outside in the back. I, I wish that, I wish and I yearn that there would be people like Nehemiah who'd be anxious to read missionary letters. That when Mona stands up here and she reads a letter from, from uh, uh, Brother Kelly up in, in, in men's, the men's home uh, up in uh, Tala, or um, uh, the Fetters over in the Marshall Islands, and you just hang in your seat. How are they doing? How are those people there doing? What's it like? Have they got a church going? Are people being saved? I yearn for people to have a, an anxiousness and a care about somebody else besides yourself. Why would Nehemiah care? Why would he inquire about a struggling remnant of people who lived hundreds, almost a, a, a thousand kilometers away is where they are? Hmm. After all, he, he, was, he was financially secure. He had a job for life as long as there was no poison in the cup. <laughs> I mean, he had to take the poison first, you understand. The ruin of Jerusalem wasn't his fault. You ever watch somebody make a mess of their life and you go, oh, I told them. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> you ever been there? It wasn't his fault that his ancestors had sinned against the Lord and brought judgment to the city of Jerusalem and to the whole kingdom of Judah. Yet, yet, go to Jeremiah chapter 15. I want you to go to the right. Hold your place here in Nehemiah. Jeremiah chapter 15. I want to show you an amazing verse. Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 5. Again, what did Jeremiah witness? The destruction of Jerusalem and everything, including the temple and all the houses. There was nothing left of the city. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 5. For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Who's going to care? Or who shall bemoan thee, get upset about you? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Jeremiah is writing, watching his city being broken up, watching his city being destroyed, and he said, will there ever be anybody who will care how things go here anymore? Well, there was. 160 years later, and his man was, his man, this name, man's name was Nehemiah. I think that's really, really cool. Nehemiah was the man that God had chosen to ask that very question. He said, how are they doing? <laughs> you know, sometimes we're always looking for answers when we ought to be asking the right questions. Well, I want to understand, did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> you idiot. That's not the right question. Amen. And yet all your friends and everybody who's trying to find a way out of facing God one day will ask all every stupid question they can. They won't ask a question like, what must I do to be saved then? And Nehemiah asked the right question. How is everybody? How are they doing? Thank God he cared.
Nehemiah cared. Hey, people who actually care about you, Brother Dan, are rare. People who actually care that their parents are religious but lost are rare. People who actually care that so many in this country are going through life with an anger against God that is unparalleled. All because they don't know Him. They don't know God. The people realize that, but they don't care to go and say, let me try to tell you who Jesus is. It's rare when people actually care enough about their workmates and their schoolmates to tell them straight up, they got to be born again. You don't need to explain and answer all their questions. Answer some of them, but at some point, look them straight in the eye and says, you know what your problem is? You need to be born again. Those kind of Christians are rare. Now, I know some, I wish I could say most, but I don't know. But I know some people prefer not to know what's going on at all. They live in eternal bliss, watching TV and on the Internet, never living in reality. Because information might bring obligation. That's why you never really mean it when you say, how are you doing? Because if they ever told you, you'd know, oh, I'm here for the next half hour, 45 minutes, two hours. Information can result in obligation. Somebody once said, what you don't know can't hurt you. Really? <laughs> I, would, I would make sure I read every page of, of the driving manual. <laughs> Because what I don't know about driving in Ireland could kill me, amen? A guy named Aldous Huxley wasn't a good guy, but he said this, facts do not cease to exist simply because they're ignored. I had a tooth. I told you this a couple years ago. I had a tooth I cracked or whatever. You know what I, did? I tried to do for months? Ignore it. Guess what? It didn't change a thing. Ignoring facts don't make them go away. How about you? Do you care? Do you know how lost this world is? Do you even care that now he's caring about a city? He's caring about walls of a city and, and the people that live there. I don't care about cities, you know, personal locations, you know. I mean, I was born in Austin, Texas, but I don't worry about the walls of the city and the highways. And you know, I worry about people there who are going to live and die without Christ. I worry about religion being the only thing the Irish have. They don't have Christ. Now, there's an effect that this had. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, and it came to pass that when they heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'm just going to close with this start. It's often, it's often that words don't affect people. Zillions of hours of TV news have only made us numb to the tragedies that we watch and go, uh, give me the popcorn. Words in a book have very little power to fire the imagination of modern people. Honestly, this generation is growing up, and they pick up the Bible, and they go, how do you turn it on? Where's the switch? Do you plug it in? <laughs> especially words in the Bible, because they're only words on, a, on blank pieces of paper to most people. That's all they are. You know, it used to turn nations to God, would turn them upside down, now bores people to death almost. Now, I try to put up pictures. I try to keep you occupied. I will not try to make a movie. you know, just words on a page used to turn nations upside down just by reminding what people thus saith the Lord. They don't seem to have that desired effect. But I'm going to say this. God doesn't care. God uses words. You're waiting for God to give you a sign. I heard of one guy who looked up and he saw a big G and a big P. And he went, I guess that means go preach. It could mean go plow. You see, you don't know what a sign or a miracle means, but I know what the Bible says, amen? Words on a page. But you know, these words stopped Nehemiah dead in his tracks. Whatever he was doing, wherever he had to be, whatever was planned for the day was thrown aside. 
stopped him. And I wish I could do that. I know you've made time for me this morning. I know you've come to church and you've made your says, you know what, your time's almost up, but a little better. It's coming up to noon, you know, roast is in the oven. I know how you work. I know all the schedule you have. But wouldn't it be nice if by you opening a book of books, it just stopped you and he says, I'm not going home. I'm not leaving until I get things right with God. Until I get my heart soft again. Until something happens. Because I'm so tired of being numb. I'm so tired of, of, of just going through the motions. I've just sat in church and then I've gone home. And nothing's ever happened. Wouldn't it be nice if it just stopped you and you'd say, Honey, you go on, go on home. I'll catch a ride. I'll find a ride home later. I just need to talk to God. I need to hear from God. The words got me today. It stopped Nehemiah. He collapsed to the ground. He sat down. Boom. Like a kick in the stomach. Trying to take it all in. He didn't brush it off. Now, he knew these truths. He knew that, that over there in, in his homeland, things were slow. Things weren't going great. But he had hoped that something was going right. And he hears that nothing was going right. And he couldn't just ignore what was happening. He let it sink in. Jesus said it often. He would say to his disciples, and he would say to everybody, he says, let these things that I'm saying sink deep in your heart. Let it, let it hit you. Let it affect you. How many of you have ever, don't raise your hand, but think for a moment, how many of you ever watched a movie? And at the end of that movie, man, just well up and tears just come and you just go, wow. And then I watched um, Saving Private Ryan the first time. And he stood there at that uh, um, uh, tombstone there of his buddy and he saw all the people who had died and there he was alive and he says, and he looked at his wife, am I a good man? Was I worth saving, you know? And man, just welled up inside of me, and I went, wow, what a reality of war. Broke my heart. Bro, I'd never been in war. Never conceived of all the stuff that went through just to save one mother's son. Well, these words collapsed him to the ground, and then it caught him. It says he wept. Now, when he uses the word weep, weep, think of weep. I mean, some people sniffle. Some people cry. Nehemiah is weeping. The word means to bewail, to moan, to lament, to be completely broken in defeat. I know sometimes weeping is a sign of weakness. I mean, I went over to Gavin there and I went to shake his hand. Went, and when I shook his hand, I said, what's up? He says, I'm trying to save my fingers. <laughs> You know, we're all worried about being hurt. Well, I'm sorry. That was just funny. He's tough. Don't worry. If he's not, we'll toughen him up. We're worried about offending people's feelings. We're worried about, hey, you know what? Weeping. I mean, if you're crying because somebody took your seat in church today, somebody took the last tea bag, there's no more scones. If you're trying for that, then that is a sign of weakness. You understand what I'm saying? But it wasn't a sign when Jesus, it wasn't a sign of weakness when Jesus wept. You know, think about it. He's broken. Paul wept. Jeremiah, you ought to read the book of Lamentations. He wept watching what happened. But when Nehemiah starts to weep, you know where he's going? He's entering into a realm of a spiritual battle that can only be fought in weakness. Are you listening? You can't just say, well, let's just, let's just go get busy doing this thing. You better stop and break and decide whatever needs to be done, I'm willing to do it, God, but I cannot do it. And that's where Nehemiah is. He mourned. Mourning is when you express deep feelings of sorrow for the people, for somebody else. And he's sorrowing for Jerusalem. It's good to have mourning. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. We mourn the loss of our sports team. You ever seen them? You ever seen them when the, when the, the last 
bell, not the bell, but the last whistle blown, and you see the guys dropping. <laughs> yeah. We mourn the loss of our wealth. We mourn the loss of a loved one, but rarely do we mourn the ruin of a nation. And I'm telling you this, if you don't start mourning for Ireland, you will. Because we're losing our nation. Nehemiah mourned. I think these are key words to focus on. When was the last time you actually mourned about somebody who walked away without getting saved? Last time you mourned about the condition of your family. Last time you mourned about anything besides your wallet. Nehemiah felt what his people were going through. And Jesus uses the term, the New Testament term is called bowels of mercies. Now, hear me out here for a second, because I'm going to talk about mourning to get you to understand. Bowels of mercies mean you, you feel it here. And, and you can't eat. You can't laugh. It just, oh, oh. And that's where you just say, I, I don't, I don't want to come against you. I don't want to fight you. I feel for you. I hurt for you. He mourned. It says he spent several days mourning and fasting. You know, if you're going to ever do anything big for God, you better fast. Before I asked my wife to marry me, I want to make sure she would. <laughs> so what'd you do, Brother Ledbetter? I prayed and fasted. I want to make sure I was right. Is this the right thing? Is this the right one? Is she going to say no? How many of you ever seen those people who get out in the middle of a big football field and they go down there and they, they present, will you marry me? And she walks away. <laughs> wow, 50,000 people going, <gasps> well, I was that one guy going, I'm risking everything here. So I prayed and I fasted. Is this the right one? I'd already prayed and fasted before, but one last time. Let me tell you, if you're ever going to do something big, you better fast because it doesn't come easy. You're going to have to learn just how weak you are. And then he prayed. Now I'm all for praying, but notice, boom, 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 boom. He's ready to pray now. He's not going anywhere. He's not doing anything, but he's doing the most important thing. What is he going to do now? Go pray. And that's where we're going to stop. We're going to see his prayer next week. Just let me finish with these thoughts. The book of Nehemiah begins with great affliction. Look in verse 3 again. They said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. But if you get back to chapter 8, verse 12, it says there's great joy. Hallelujah. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Often our tears and burdens and sorrows are for a greater purpose than we could ever imagine and can bring such joy. Don't be defeated. You say, I feel so defeated. All I want to do is cry. Amen. That may be enough to water the success of something for God. Don't give up. As I said earlier, I hope you're seeing that this book is not just a record of the rebuilding of ruined walls, but God's instructions on how to rebuild and restore ruined lives, including your own. We're getting a small glimpse into how God was preparing a man named Nehemiah for an impossibly large task. Imagine, I mean, I can't conceive of it. Imagine a city like Cork being burned to the ground and one man saying, let's go rebuild it. I mean, you couldn't conceive of that, and yet that's what God was laying on his heart. He woke him up to the reality of what was going on back in Jerusalem. They weren't getting on fine. They were hurting, and he hurt with them. God prepared Nehemiah by tapping into his heart. Did you notice through all of those things, the moaning, the weeping, the stopping dead and collapsing? I think his heart is engaged. Would you agree? God tapped into his heart. And if you ever are in church and God's tapping on that heart and you fight him, I pity you because that's what God wants to do. He doesn't want your head. He wants your heart. What's it going to take to wake you up? Do you even care to know how lost the world is? Do you ever wonder how much emotional, spiritual abuse people can take by religion and atheism? 
I mean, the abuse. You talk about sexual abuse. Abuse has been going on for 6,000 years. There's been religious abuse. There's been intellectual abuse. There has been political abuse. There's abuse. The only person that's free and sane in the midst of it, even in prison, even under torture, a Christian still sings. Because something happened. What's it going to take to wake you up to the condition of our world? I sure hope that some of us become like Nehemiah, all of us become like Nehemiah, anxious as we read missionary prayer letters, anxious to know of all the persecutions that are going on as we hear about over in East Timor and Indonesia, places all over the world. Do you have to wait until it's our children being persecuted before we start going? Do we have to wait until our nation throws off almost all of its morality before we rise up and start rebuilding what should have been built a long time ago? Hmm. Have you heard the news about your soul's ruin? Let me tell you this. Ezekiel 18.20 makes it very clear. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Because the wages of sin is? I think everybody in this room knows there's plenty of sin in there to put us away forever. How about the needs of your family? Joe, you know, if you're the dad in your home, you know what? God gave you an ability to save your home. Amen. Amen. Now, it may be the hardest thing you ever do, but that's why God puts you, you say, well, I don't have a husband. Then it falls to you. But it can be done. Say, I don't have a saved mom or dad. Then it falls on you. <laughs> The same God who could have helped your dad if he'd stayed around. The same God that could have helped your mom if she'd stayed around. I don't know what happened to her. But the same God is your God. And he wants to rebuild what the devil has destroyed, no matter what it is. How about the conditions of the people all over the world? Without God, without hope? Don't you ever wake up and go, what I know, what I take for granted, 90, 95% of the world doesn't have a clue. Not I know, if I know two scriptures, I know two more than most people. You know, Jesus is far better than Nehemiah. <laughs> I don't want to be like Nehemiah. <clears throat> I want to be like Jesus, but I want to learn from Nehemiah. And by the way, I don't want to be a Nehemiah. Because I, God didn't call me to be a Nehemiah like that. Sometimes people are called to lead great numbers, thousands of people. Let's go do this thing. I just want to be faithful that when God calls, whatever he calls me to do, I'll do it. Amen. Because Nehemiah couldn't do it if he was the only one going. Nehemiah had to have bucket loads of people who'd say, Nehemiah, I'll go with you. I may be able to just move bricks, but that's what I'll do. Amen. Let God's news, that book, sink down into our hearts and provoke us to do something this year. Amen. Amen. Stand with me and bow your heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know what everybody's thinking. I don't know. Really, how to close this up. I know this. There's a lot of rebuilding to do. We cannot just let our sons and our daughters just go their own way. We cannot just let our families just do their own thing. We cannot just let our own eyes to just wander and to just see what they see. We cannot let our hearts ponder and, 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 and run its own course. We cannot let our neighbors go to hell. We cannot let our co-workers and our schoolmates be ignorant of the gospel. We cannot let we cannot let our hearts remain cold. So this morning, Lord, I'm going to pray from my own heart. And just maybe, just maybe some other people pray too, that, Lord, you would break our hearts, break mine, soften my heart so your word can knock me off my feet so that the news down in this book is not all good, it's not all great. Some of it's very bad, some of it's very hard to hear. But it's all necessary. And whatever I need, may it change me. May it make me a rebuilder for 
We're so good at criticizing. Wow, are we good at tearing things down. Turn us around, Lord. Put bricks in our hand to build, not to cast. Put trowels and swords in our hands to make something great and to stand and defend it. That's what you called us to do here in Valley College for 2018. I pray we would do it. And if somebody in this room has just played the game of Christianity, never been born again, may they consider the news is bad. It's only going to get worse. They're going to enter off into eternity one day and going to have regrets forever that they didn't get saved in the old church. Just a simple meeting place. They didn't get saved because they're too proud, too hard, too arrogant, and they need to get saved today. Let them come talk to me. I would. If I was not saved, I'd run right now. I'd say, Pastor, pray for me. Pray with me. Talk to me. Get me through this confusion. Help me get saved. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to waste another day. I don't want to waste another hour. God, please help somebody to have that kind of desire. And the rest of us say, Lord, help me be a soul winner this year. In Jesus' name, amen.